listening to 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Brickwick Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be taking a look at current developments in the world of science. In addition, we'll be talking with Dr. Shinsuke Shimojo about rapport induced by visual perception. Also, we'll find out what an electron really is. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Brickley Grocks. I'm Frank Lee. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Not too bad. How about you? It's another fun week for uh, science excitement. Yes, just like MTV. So, the uh, voice of the young generation. <laughs> the shebangs of... <laughs> the shebang of science is what we are, yes. <laughs> we still haven't been able to get William Hung onto the show. Uh, of the years we've been doing the show, that is perhaps my most bitter disappointment, is that <laughs> William Hung has not agreed to do the show. Oh, come on, William. <laughs> what are you afraid of, William? We offer this challenge to you. <laughs> shebang the grocks. So if you're not shebanging, do you want to get bitten by snakes? I'm rarely shebanging, and so I uh, my only alternative is to get bitten by snakes. How about uh, getting your blood stain on your clothes? It happens very rarely. Uh-huh. I think I'm anemic, so... <laughs> Turns out, uh, getting blood stains on your clothes and getting the snake oil can actually help each other. Actual snake oil. The venom from the snake. The venom oil. from the snake. Okay. So it turns out the venom contains enzymes which prevent your blood from clotting, okay. anticoagulant. Okay. And so the same principle can be used to uh, remove blood stains from your clothes. So normally, I guess the blood would just sort of uh, coagulate and bind to the fibers in the clothes. Right. The fibrinogen proteins are right. very strongly binding, and it's almost impossible to remove them. Mm. But these enzymes specifically uh, cleave these proteins, so then the, the blood can disappear. So are they going to try and put this in detergents or something like that? Right, that's the plan right now. This is work carried out by Dr. Yamoto at Whittier College, and what they've been trying to do is extracting these enzymes from the venom, the snake oil, right. and getting it to break up these blood clots. So they really are snake oil salesmen, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess not very good news for hemophiliacs. Ooh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to wash your clothes with that. Yeah, they'll be itching with that. Because I imagine it's going to be a while before it gets on uh, the shelves. Because <laughs> FDA approved and all that. Right. So this is work carried out by uh, Dr. Devin Yamoto at Whittier and just check out his website at the Department of Chemistry over there. The uh, retro is in style. Are we talking about the 80s retro or the <laughs> 70s retro? Oh, we're, we're actually talking about 30s retro. Oh, 30s. Yeah. Man, you're old, old school. We're going old, old, old school. So it turns out that almost a century, in fact, astrophysicists show that electrons don't really move in simple orbits like planets. It's more like these cloud-like waves. I'm waiting for that wave to catch wave. that wave. Everyone's trying to catch the wave. But it turns out that researchers now have resurrected this model of a particle moving in simple orbits around a nucleus. So it was quite a fascinating experiment, and they've shown that this Bohr model of the atom might actually be possible under certain conditions. Really? Yeah, so physicists Haruka Maeda and Thomas Gallagher at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville have shown that it is possible by exciting an electron with a lithium laser to a very high energy and then putting a pulsed microwave field around the uh, atom. Right. And this actually causes the electron to, to orbit the nucleus in a very defined, simple orbit. And it basically shows that uh, they can actually focus the electron into a very simple particle-like state uh-huh. and keep it moving, in, in this case in an ellipse, about 15,000 times before before they stopped this experiment. Wow. So 
it's not saying that the simple Bohr model is correct, but mm -hmm. in fact they can get electrons to move in this fashion. It demonstrates the particle-like behavior of the Bohr model, right? Right. And in fact, this was actually predicted by Ernst Schrödinger. He's actually f more famous for actually predicting it to be a wave, but <laughs> <laughs> he actually suggested that there was particle-like natures. Whoa. So it's kind of interesting, and this was actually published in the Physical Review Letters. Alright, so I guess finally I'm going to talk about one of my favorite compounds. Okay. Titanium dioxide. Okay, isn't that everybody's favorite compound? It's in your drugs, it's in your paint. It has replaced both oxygen and H2O. As yeah, it doesn't taste at all. Yeah, you're better. <laughs> but it turns out it has some very interesting photocatalytic properties in terms of using the sunlight, the UV, and some water to produce a material that can degrade organic compounds. Most likely the target's going to be pollutants in the air. So you put this thing just right, straight it breaks, into the... it breaks it apart. So okay. it takes the light and then it breaks apart the water, you get these uh, radicals, uh, OH radicals, hydrogen radicals, uh -huh. and those can attack organic compounds very, very well. So this works in the gas phase in the air? It works in the interface, so you basically you just need a little moisture in the air, and then at the surface, the uh, TiO2 and okay. the light will break it up. Okay. And what some scientists, uh, John Hopkins recently found out, is that if you add some iron-containing protein, it turns out that that enhances the uh, catalytic ability of this TiO2 system. Okay, but how much of this TiO2 would you need? I well, you know, you just coat it on the building. Like oh, building, I see, I see. So right. They're not sure why this synergistic effect is going on, but mm. it's quite interesting that when you combine with a natural system and an inorganic system, you get this enhanced effect of degradation. Cool. So put it on your paints <laughs> on your building and bring wherever you can. Clean so, the air. Yeah, people are interested in that. Just go to the Department of Chemistry website at John Hopkins University. So what do you do to court the members of the opposite sex? Uh, nothing. Uh, has that worked for you thus far? No. I'm sitting on my butt, basically, okay. and working on some radio show. I don't know, I don't know if that really works, in fact. Uh, <laughs> I thought it might, but alas, <laughs> hey, where are you? <laughs> Actually, it turns out that certain types of neurons, at least in fruit flies, mm -hmm. may be responsible for the courtship behavior. Really? So it turns out that a group of researchers, Sue Broughton at the University College London and her colleagues at the Neuroscience Institute in La Jolla, have shown that if you selectively switch on these neurons in adult male flies, which are located in the protocerebrum uh, part of the brain, that they found that they could drastically increase their uh, properly courting the female fruit flies. So it's all in the brains. At least in fruit flies, a very specific circuit involved in that. You just turn it on and they'll, they'll start going at it. Wow. And this might actually be useful if you want to control their erotic behavior. <laughs> <laughs> their she-banging, if you will. <laughs> I love flies. <laughs> <laughs> we all love flies. But it's fascinating work and it was carried out in the April 6th issue of Current Biology. And that's all for this week's look at the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grox only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, coming up next, Professor Shinsuke Shimojo will join us to discuss rapport and visual perception. So stay tuned.
going back to Berkeley Grox. Of all the organs in the human body, the brain remains one of the most mysterious. While a complete description of consciousness may not be within our grasp, scientists have made extraordinary progress in understanding fundamental processes such as signal processing in our nervous system. Well, joining us today is Professor Shinsuke Shimojo, Professor of Biology at Caltech. He studies the computational and neural system and is here to talk about his research in visual perception and his recent paper on our concept of beauty. Professor Shimojo, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Grox today. Hi. So first of all, uh, maybe you could give us a brief background. What exactly is uh, psychophysics? My original background is psychology, more specifically experimental psychology. And traditionally speaking, psychophysics is a methodology in which uh, you study a human experience of perception uh, or a memory or uh, emotional judgment or anything mental from objective, behavioral, and quantitative way. So that's the definition of my field, psychophysics. The reason why it's called psychophysics is a peculiar name is because we are studying the relationship between psycho world, you know, th that is the mental world, mm -hmm. in relation to quantifiable physical uh, environment, physical energy. So that's why it's called psychophysics. And you make a distinction between cognitive and neuroscience. What exactly is the difference? My field, psychophysics, in the current cognitive map of the brain science is sort of falling in between so-called cognitive science and brain science and trying to bridge the gap between. The reason is because cognitive science mainly studies functions, including humans and animals, but in relation to algorithm and computation, which can be basically simulated by computers. So that's the essence of cognitive science. The brain science, of course, uh, or neuroscience, as you may know, studies the materialistic, physiological, or genetic even, uh, basis of the mental world. Uh, those two are different. One is structure, the other is function. But they, no doubt, in a very, very close and intrinsic relationship. Not many people really know, understand how that relationship goes. So that's the kind of study that we are trying to do in psychophysics. That's very exciting. Recently, had a paper out in the December 2003 issue of Nature Neuroscience, and in this paper, you suggest that when a subject is asked to choose between two faces, they'll spend more time gazing at the one that they uh, will find more attractive and will choose it eventually. Could you tell us a little bit about these findings? This is actually um, our first attempt to study anything related to emotion. Emotion, I think, as well as consciousness, are the two last challenges to scientists in cognitive brain science. Mm -hmm. The reason is because both are very subjective. And science, by definition, and it's due to its methodology, is objective. So how do you study subjectiveness uh, using objectiveness is the challenge. Now, recently, we came up with this idea that even though uh, preference judgment uh, or some uh, aesthetic judgment is entirely subjective, there may be some somatic precursor, meaning body or physiological precursor, which uh, proceeds to a conscious awareness or a conscious uh, decision of the person. And if this is the case, then you can, of course, study it, study the process objectively. Mm -hmm. There is a reason that this may be the case. For example, uh, when one realizes that he or she likes somebody, it's typically the case that uh, he or she doesn't know really why, but suddenly uh, he or she realizes that's the case, you know? <laughs> it's like, like a sudden incident, a sudden occurrence. The reason is not obvious to the first person is mainly because it's due to implicit 
subconscious processes, including uh, lots of physiological bodily action and uh, neural processing, which is implicit again. This is the target in our case. To be more specific, I wonder if some of you uh, may remember this uh, William James, you know, the classical psychologist, a question uh, as to whether one cries because one is sad or one, one is sad because one is crying, you know, which is true, which is the causal relationship. And, of course, uh, ordinary people would think, typically, that one cries only because one feels sad. Uh, a lot of physiologists and psychologists historically argue for the opposite causal uh, link as well, which is that once you cry for whatever reason, you know, you feel even sadder. And uh, we wonder if the same applies to the situation, uh, the relationship between gaze and liking. So, you know, just rephrase the same question one could ask, whether one look at the particular thing even longer because one like it better, or since one like it better because uh, one look at it longer. Our conclusion, to tell you the, the conclusion first, is that, in fact, it's both ways. The oh. causal link uh, pathways in the brain are both ways. And this is like a positive feedback pathway. It's like a cascade. So one can influence the other. Yeah, yeah. One influences the other, the other influences the, the first one. And then it's positive feedback and your conscious awareness of liking or judgment of liking is just the final outcome of this cascade-like process. So smiling can also make you happy. Exactly. <laughs> so it's called uh, role-playing paradigm in cognitive social psychology. Mm -hmm. So when you feel sad, you smile and that helps you to feel happier. And mm -hmm. there's evidence for this. But So it's related to this kind of study, but our case is uh, unique in that it attempts to find a link between bodily orienting mechanism, which is well studied, well, well established on one hand, and subjective cognitive experience of liking. And uh, I can perhaps uh, describe what exactly we did. So imagine that you are the subject, uh, you are sitting in our lab, and uh, you are looking at two faces on computer screen. These two faces, in one case, are pre-matched in terms of baseline attractiveness and race and gender and everything else. And in some other cases, in some other experiments, we didn't match. So one is beautiful from anybody's viewpoint and the other is ugly from anybody's viewpoint. Mm -hmm. But anyways, you have two faces. Now, you are asked as a subject to freely observe these two until you know exactly which face you like uh, better, which face you are attracted better. And then when you are aware of this, you have to press the button, left button or right button accordingly to indicate your judgment, okay? So the task is very simple, stimulus is very simple, but meanwhile, uh, we are uh, measuring your eye movements before your judgment. And the question is the following. This is the experimenters' question to themselves. Is there any aspect, almost any aspect, of the eye movement patterns before the subject's conscious decision, which predicts the decision as to whether left or right face is more attractive. So basically, we were trying to know the observer's decision before the observer is consciously aware. It's a quite bold attempt, but as a result, we found that we could do it not a huge amount of time ahead. Uh, it's about um, one second or less but still we can do it. The way we analyze the data is the following. So we measure eye mo movement pattern in each trial, and then we average the likelihood of eye staying at the particular face, let's say the finally chosen face, as the function of time to the final decision. So in other words, we analyze the eye movement pattern data time-locked to the final decision, not 
to the onset of the stimulus. Mm -hmm. And this turned out to be the key to success. So you find some correlation. That's right. So because we are interested in the correlation of eye movement, not so much to the onset of the stimuli, but very much to the final decision. So for this reason, we uh, time lock our analysis to the final decision, bottom pressing. Okay. Mm -hmm. As a result, if you plot the likelihood of gaze staying at the finally chosen phase as a function as a function of the time to the final decision, uh, it turned out that of course initially you are looking both faces back and forth, so it's 50 percent, and then some random noise. But then about one second, or less than one second ahead of final decision, then the likelihood starts increasing towards 80 percent, or even more than 90 percent in some particular cases, to the eventually chosen phase. And then when uh, your gauge bias is going beyond uh, 85% or 90%, depending on the conditions, then you are finally ready to press the button, and you do indeed. So this is the finding, and, and then uh, the way we interpreted this uh, result, the main finding is, again, both-way causal relationship, some kind of positive feedback pathway, and then conscious awareness is just going beyond the threshold towards the end of this loop. So that's the um, main finding. You had a second part of your study, the, the gaze manipulation. Oh, so, maybe you can talk about that a little bit. So before I step into it, uh, I have to say two things. One is that because of our theory, and it's somewhat postdoc theory, we need to empirically prove that the other pathway, which is counterintuitive pathway, mm -hmm. that is, one is seeing, therefore one like it better pathway, mm -hmm. which is opposite to the intuition, we need to have a little more direct evidence. And the direct evidence is to manipulate the observer's preference by simply manipulating the gaze pattern. But the second is sort of like a warning that, you know, of course we are aware that this may sound terrible uh, from ethical viewpoint. <laughs> you know, I mean, one is worried about free will and freedom and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, are we trying to manipulate somebody's mind? First of all, uh, we were successful only to some limit. Uh, you know, I, as I will tell you, it's only 60% versus 50%. Mm -hmm. So we didn't really tap on one's free will. And uh, I doubt that this is going to work in the outside of the laboratory yet. But nonetheless, if our theory is correct, then we should see some increase uh, or some effect of manipulation, gaze manipulation on uh, one's uh, preference. Right. Okay, so here's uh, the way we did. This time, there's only one face, either on the left side or the other face on the right side on the screen, alternating quickly. One is presented shorter, the other is presented longer. And the subject was asked to just uh, naturally follow those faces by with their gaze. Uh, this is repeated either two times, six times, or 12 times. Of course, the more repetition, we expect more effect. And towards the end of each trial, this, the observer saw two faces presented briefly and then just make a quick judgment as to which side is more attractive. So now it turned out that uh, twice repetition of the shorter, longer uh, face presentation did not have any effect. That is that the subject's chance, likelihood, of choosing the longer presented face was roughly speaking 50% and not statistically deviated from it. But if we repeated this like six cycles or 12 cycles, then suddenly uh, the choice is about 60% towards the longer presented and therefore the longer gazed uh, fixated uh, face. By this margin, and uh, this was true in out of like 12 individually statistically significant out of in 12 out of 15 subjects. So it is group-wise significant and individual-wise, in most cases, significant result. 
So with this margin of 50 to 60 percent, and with these three exceptions out of 15 subjects, we could manipulate successfully one's preference in accordance with our theory. So for us, this is again the evidence that there's this bidirectional evidence or causal pathways going on, going on in the brain when one attempts to um, make a decision of uh, preference. Uh, now, I have to quickly add that this cannot be explained by any other artifact. So for the first uh, main finding of gaze cascade itself, this happens only when one is asked to choose a more attractive face. Never happened uh, when one was asked to choose actually uh, uh, less attractive faces <laughs> or around faces. Mm. Okay, so it's only when you're trying to find more attractive this happens. Uh, for this manipulation experiment, the second part, we were worried that it could be just an effect of mere exposure because there is another finding known in the literature that whenever one is exposed to particular stimulus longer or more frequently, then automatically the liking goes up. So in our case, you know, one is one face is presented shorter, the other face is presented longer. So maybe the longer face is just you know becoming more attractive only due to this mere exposure. So we had some other control experiment in which the presentation time was again short versus long, but the subject is not allowed to move a gaze. And then in that case, we don't get any effect of manipulation. It's not so much of which face is presented longer, but it's ra it rather is which face the observer gaze longer, gazes longer, matters in our case. Oh, I see. Okay? So that's why we think it's not just mere exposure, but the gaze itself. In other words, in order, if you would like to become liking somebody, then meet the person more frequently, that mm -hmm. certainly helps. But that's not enough. You actively orient towards this person, you know, look at this person, talk to this person, your entire body and mind and behavior oriented towards this person will make your impression better. So that's the sort of outside of laboratory uh, lesson which may or may not work again because it's outside of laboratory, but mm -hmm. if you take our experimental results seriously, that's the kind of things that I can say. I'm just curious, uh, have you found any differences between the perception of women and men, or children and adults? Yes, uh, we analyzed uh, all different cross-relationships um, uh, between uh, observer's gender versus the stimulus material, you know, faces gender. As for the main finding, there's no differences. Uh, we haven't tried uh, age or children, etc. But I know that infants, even newborn infants, show this thing called preferential looking. Uh, preferential looking is the phenomena that you can observe even in newborns. Whenever they are given, they are exposed to uh, multiple stimuli, they compare and look at what is supposedly most attractive material or object. doesn't have to be face. So it seems like this is our intrinsic tendency, almost uh, innate tendency, so to genetic, find perhaps. such for more attractive and looking at it. But our new point, our new finding, is that that in turn directly contributes to our conscious, symbolic, cognitive uh, level of judgment. So that's the new part. We, in a way, are finding connect what we knew about babies and what we knew about adults. In reality, all adults used to be babies, so this is <laughs> not a surprise. Are there any salient features which people would, would describe as attractive? Uh, you know, for example, symmetry or... Yes. So it's sort of like um, one ongoing project that mm -hmm. um, we are interested. Uh, there are tons of papers indicating. Uh, some of them indicate that symmetry is very, very important. Attractiveness definition, not just humans, among humans, but also among some animals. Mm -hmm. Uh, some argue that symmetry is not the entire thing. Some argue that there's biological significance for symmetry. 
to us, what makes more sense is the past experience. Because there's another theory claiming that everybody has one's own uh, attractiveness template mm-hmm. in the brain, which is based upon his or her past experience of faces. Right. In fact, the attractiveness template can be approximated by weighted average of the entire faces, face experience in, in the life. So you know, that's kind of interesting because then you know you are more exposed and you you sort of interact orienting to that face more. Then you have stronger trace in the in the brain and you know that defines sort of attractiveness. So our theory and our finding is not particularly uh, proving or disproving this theory of attractiveness template, but it adds a lot to this uh, attractiveness template theory because it points out the other side of the causal relationship. I guess we're running a little bit out of time today. Uh, are there any last words you'd like to add about yourself or your research? I'd like to add a couple of interesting new findings beyond this published paper. So everybody asks, well, is this limited to faces? So we did several things. Even in the uh, in the paper, we reported that you can get even stronger gaze cascade effect that I described with entirely abstract geometric figures. So we used Fourier descriptors that is mathematically defined shape generator, and we created many, many symmetrical shapes, and we get very strong gaze cascade in close link to preference judgment of these uh, figures. We recently started trying commercial products such as jewelry, uh, cars, furniture, stuff like that, and our basic finding is again conformal. It seems like whenever we are asked to choose whichever is more attractive, regardless of the material, whether it's face or not, we generate this gaze cascade. In some other studies, we show that um, there's no way we avoid gaze cascade. So, for example, even if one face is most attractive, the other face is ugliest, we still need to generate gaze cascade in order to say consciously that this face is more attractive than the other. So, it's really, you know, like necessary component of our brain to make any attractiveness judgment. So, you know, I thought... This might be worth mentioning. This is excellent. Uh, Professor Shimojo, it's yeah. been a very interesting discussion. Okay. Uh, thanks very much for joining us on Berkeley uh, College. You're today. welcome. You were just listening to an interview with Professor Shinsuke Shimojo from the California Institute of Technology discussing visual perception and our concepts of beauty. You're listening to Berkeley Grox only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, coming up next, you can find out, is it a particle or a wave? So, stay tuned.
back to Verse with Rocks, and now here's the crazy scientist with the answer to last week's question of the week. Hey, 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 you know what, you know what, you know what is the answer, that's the answer, that's the answer to last week's question, question, question of the week! It's an electron, a particle, or a wave, you know it's a particle, or a wave, or a particle, or a wave, in fact, it's a trick question! <laughs> In fact, it's both! It can be a particle or a wave! A particle or a wave! And now you know the answer! Particle or a wave! Uh, Alright, crazy scientist. And uh, now here's Forrest uh, Gump with Sweet's Question of the Week. Thank you, Mr. Lee. My mama used to say, drink a lot of milk if you want to grow up. So I drank a lot of milk. But I don't know what's in milk. Do you? If you know the answer, email us at groks at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you'll grow up just like me. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grocks, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie. <laughs>